Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. I'm Kara Platoni. I'm Eric Simmons. And I'm Laura Hautala. And in this show, we are going to the beach. That sounds unusually relaxing for the field trip. To look at the violent history of fractured, shattered rocks. And that sounds more like it. So grab your sunscreen and your pickaxe. And let's go on a field trip. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we last heard from you on the field trip, you were doing this. Taxidermy, it keeps vital looking fresh. Taxidermy, making pets their Sunday best. Er, right. So we already know that you know how to rock the ukulele, but what's with you in the actual rocks? Uh, Well, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and every summer my family went to the Oregon coast, where these huge dark rock formations just rise out of the ocean. I actually thought they were kind of magical, but I quickly learned that these rocks were actually the result of millions of years of volcanic eruptions and shifting tectonic plates. Wait, you learned that as a kid? Yeah, so I kind of have this science mom. Science mom? My mom was a middle school science teacher. My middle school science teacher. Uh, For some kids, the geology lessons ended with a school bell, but not for me. No, not for me. Mmm, Laura? Right. So anytime we went on vacation, my mom gave us rock talks. I probably didn't appreciate those talks as much when I was a kid, but her lesson stuck with me. So when my family went back to Oregon this summer, my mom and I met up with a naturalist from Oregon State Parks and took a much closer look at these basalt beauties. So what's it like to go back now? Did anything surprise you? Oh man, yes. We learned that the beach hasn't always been a relaxing place. In fact, it's the result of some really violent geological history. Uh, But the rocks aren't just dead monuments. They're covered top to bottom with living creatures who are battling out for survival in their own way. There's sea stars, mussels, barnacles, snails, seabirds, tunicates. Tunicates? Here, why don't I just show you? Okay, we're here at Ecola State Park on the Oregon coast, and I'm here with my mom, Jenny Hautala. Hi, Mom. Hi, how are you doing, dear? We walk to a high promontory on Bald Point where we can see a string of beaches at low tide. To the north and south, long beaches are carved out of the cliffs like pockets. And all along the shoreline, huge black rocks jut out of the sand. On the promontory, we meet the naturalist. My name is Shelley Parker. I'm an interpretive park ranger. And right now we're looking off at our wonderful basalt sea stacks. Sea stack, what, is it? what does that mean? What does it look like? Um, a sea stack is a very large basalt rock and it extends usually up off the sea. And um, they're rocky and craggy and, and very dark. And about how high are they? Well, they can range anywhere between below sea level up to 200, 300 feet, depending on where you are. The rocks we see here stem from one of the greatest geological events that has occurred off of the Pacific Northwest. And some 17 million years ago, large vents opened up in the Earth's crust in eastern Oregon, which unleashed uh, colossal lava flows that extended down the ancient Columbia River Valley. And like blood gushing from a wound, the lava flowed down the Columbia River Valley and where it met the sea, it burrowed down into the sediments and muds of the ocean. What was once a river valley became a very long and large basalt snake-like strip that extended from the Dalles down to present-day Newport, Oregon. 
this uh, filled the ancient river valley and pushed the river northward. And soon a new river valley cut its way across to the ocean. So Shelley kind of blew my mind with that. Millions of years ago, a giant river valley got filled with lava. The lava flowed all the way to the ocean and formed basalt rock, and the river got pushed northward. Then that happened again and again over millions of years. So if the lava flowed into the ocean, why isn't the basalt just lying on top of everything? Didn't you say that the rocks jut up out of the sand? Well, the basalt was buried in sands and muds that formed sedimentary rocks all around it. But then, you know, millions of years passed by, and as it turns out, sedimentary rock is much more susceptible to erosion than basalt. Here's Shelley on what happened. The colossal basalt flows laid buried in the sediment and muds until the pounding of the waves scoured away the sediments and mud. So the waves slowly broke down the sedimentary rocks and revealed these big basalt structures? Yeah, the waves and the wind and also the rain, they have a little bit of rain in Oregon. Okay, well why don't we go down and look at some rocks? Okay, let's do it. We walk down to the beach and the first thing we notice is a big mess of sea stars, known to people without science moms as starfish. So what are these guys? Well, we're seeing the ochre sea stars, which come in a variety of purple, orange, and kind of a reddish hue, clinging to the rocks along with sea anemones. We have the brilliant green, giant green sea anemones. Um, as you go further up, you get the aggregating anemones that call, are colonial and in large groups. And then as you rise up, you see the layer where the sea stars don't go above anymore because then you see their favorite food, the mussels. We have giant, enormous mussel beds that congregate up on top, clinging to the rocks. So, so that's the sea stars' food? That's their main food source. Their favorite food are the, the mussels. So they're just kind of clinging to the rock where their food is? Exactly, yeah. They're hanging out nearby. Don't go too far. It's pretty easy pickings for them. Wait, so, so how, how do they get them? So when the tide comes in, they'll move up. Um, they have hundreds of little tube feet underneath them that all kind of move together, and they'll slowly crawl about one foot every three hours up to the, the muscle beds. Um, they, don't, they actually are strong enough to pry open a muscle, but they don't need to pry it open too much because what they do is they slip their gelatinous stomach out of their mouth and into the, the muscle shell and digest it in its shell. Then once it's done digesting, they slurp it back into their body. So they only need to open it up about a millimeter or so. So it's really slow motion, but still kind of dramatic. <laughs> yes, kind of dramatic. You know you grew up with a science mom if you think external gelatinous stomachs are very cool. I think external gelatinous stomachs are very cool. I am much less excited about lunch than I used to be. We start walking around the rocks into a basalt cobble field where hundreds of smaller rocks are sitting on top of tide pools. I can see over in the distance, you can see some of the seabird colonies that inhabit the upper regions of the, of the rocks. And they like to be up high because it, one, is protects them from predators, land-based predators like raccoons, foxes, minks. But also, sea seabirds are really made for the sea. Many of them fly underwater to to catch their prey, but that comes at a cost of being able to fly in the air very well. So those sea stacks also create a nice launching pad for them to be able to get out to sea to, to fish. 
as we walk around, it becomes pretty clear that everything clinging to these rocks is trying to eat some other creature living there. It starts with the dark green rockweed, which is clinging to the rock in big patches, drinking in the sunlight with its short, kind of streamer-like leaves. And, and what's this? Is it looks kind of like kelp or something. Yeah, this is a type of seaweed, and it looks like we have like a, a rockweed here. And you can see, again, it's creating a habitat itself. Little hermit crab under here, and it's a great place to look for sea creatures. Oh, he's a, a little tiny crab in there. Yeah, little hermit crabs hiding and they'll actually eat some of the seaweed too but he's he's hiding hunkered down waiting for the tide to come in huh. we also get tunicates in here and tunicates are basically our closest relative in the tide pools during their larval process they actually harbor a primitive spinal cord i was waiting for the tunicates i mean these creatures are the coolest separately they look like tiny orange florets but growing together, they cover several square feet and share a metabolism. Wait, they share a metabolism? What is this, the Matrix? Well, in a way, yeah. And it's not just the tunicates that are interconnected. I mean, you can basically see the whole tide pool food chain on a single rock face. So I see the, the rockweed, mm -hmm. and then I see the um, starfish. Yeah. And the starfish would eat the mussels up there. Yes. And maybe some hermit crabs could eat the rockweed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the anemone eat? The anemone waits for food to come to it. So it's kind of like room service with the ocean. So when the ocean comes in, the anemone opens up and it has those lovely tentacles that harbor stinging cells. They're actually related to jellyfish and they have the stinging cells in their tentacles. So when food comes by, those stinging cells and the tentacles that are sticky will grab onto material that's in the water. Sea star, there's sea stars right there, mm -hmm. kind of. Can, can the sea star get the anemone? It looks like it's bigger than the anemone. They could. They definitely will eat just about anything. So it's kind of like a, a battle going on here on this rock. Yes, we have definitely a very dramatic scene before us that uh, survival of the fittest is going on right now. But just for the record, nothing appears to be moving at no. the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a different time scale, that's for sure. I think we lost my mom. <laughs> so where was your science mom? She walked around and took a bunch of pictures for us to show you of the field trip. You can put them up on the field trip website. Then we sat on some driftwood for rock talk. How did I do on my geology section, do you remember? Uh, well, you clearly passed because I wouldn't have let you fail it. <laughs> no, I think you did all right. Um, we. You know, it was a fairly uh, basic lesson that we were studying, and um, I think you always got A's in science, so you must have done well. Really? You don't remember the one time I got a B plus? <laughs> Clearly not as well as you do. It was my only B. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry about that, dear. Had to be the teacher. <laughs> so that's your family's idea of a day at the beach, eh? Yep. I really like the idea that this place where you go to put a towel down and relax is actually the result of millions of years of violent geological processes in the home to a Darwinian fight for survival. Just like middle school. 
for joining us for a special Summer Dispatches edition of the Field Trip Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new one from somewhere else on the planet. Our behind-the-scenes team includes producer Casey Miner, composer Andrew Sutherland, and illustrator Mike Smith. Special thanks to this week's reporter, Laura Hatala. Thanks for having me. And as always, thanks to Jim Richards, Jeremy Rue, the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and science nerds everywhere. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can download our podcast for free on iTunes or from our website at fieldtrippodcast.com. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed for more updates. We're at Field Trip Log. I'm Eric Simmons. I'm Kara Platoni. And we'll see you next time on the Field Trip Podcast. <laughs>